It's funny, it just strikes me as we're, as we're singing those songs. What, what an amazing, amazing gospel that we have. What, what an awesome, awesome king that we have to proclaim. It's, it's such a wonderful privilege to, to know this King Jesus and to be able to share him with other people. He's, he's the Messiah, he's the Christ. But how do you get to that place? How do you get to the place where you are filled with joy in proclaiming that Jesus is the, the King crucified on the cross? And that's what this passage, and indeed the whole of Mark, is, is all about. Now, many of you that, that know me here will know that I've been a teacher um, for the last two years. And those of you that have either worked with small children or have been a teacher before will probably know that there are times where you want to bang your head against the board or their head against the board. But there, there are times where you've been teaching them something and it seems like a very, 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 very simple concept. Two add two is four, right? Very simple concept. And you've been teaching this in various forms with the most modern type of teaching with all the smart board and all the interactive devices for the last half an hour. And you say, there, have you got it? Blank faces. And you want to, you want, it beggars belief. You want to throw them through a window. I'm not a teacher anymore, so I can't get sacked for saying something like that. John's nodding over there. It beggars belief. Something can be right in front of you and so obvious, and yet you can still fail utterly to grasp the significance of it. And that's exactly what we find here in Mark. You see, he's showing us here that there is something about Jesus that every single person around him, whether they are the most biblically articulate and biblically literate scholars of the day, or the down-home workaday fishermen, are failing to get. There is something that they're failing to understand. So what are they failing to grasp? See, it's what Mark tells us actually at the very, very beginning of his gospel. Mark actually tips his hand for us when the gospel opens. He says this, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Right? He gives us what he's talking about right from the word go. And, and the whole gospel, by the way, is, is designed by Mark and laid out to teach us about this very good news. It's, it's been said, actually, by a lot of commentators that there are really only two lessons, two major lessons in Mark. The first one is Jesus is the Messiah. And the second one is Jesus the Messiah has come to suffer and die on the cross. Those are really only broadly the two lessons in Mark. Jesus is the Messiah and he's come to die on the cross. And it's actually no coincidence that Mark is separated into 16 chapters. And, and this confession of Jesus that we get here in chapter 8 happens where it does. See, I think in Mark's mind, this confession of Jesus is kind of the, the hinge on which the whole gospel turns. It forms the, the core, both theologically and actually, of the gospel itself. So, why is it then that nobody has grasped what Mark has plainly told us right at the beginning of the gospel. Why is it, incidentally, that only the demons that Jesus cast out have been able to declare who he is clearly? I wonder if you caught that over the past few weeks. Why is it that only the demons know who Jesus is? See, why is it that not only the, the Pharisees and the disciples, but maybe even people in this place here today and across our country don't get 
who Jesus is. Well, this passage here this morning gives us, I think, uh, the reason why that is, and also the remedy for that, the reason and the remedy. Those are the two things we're going to be looking at this evening. And I think that the first, the, the reason why nobody gets who Jesus is, is simply because everyone is spiritually blind. Everyone in this passage is suffering from spiritual blindness. And we're going to look at verses 11 to 21 here. And this is going to show us, firstly, the scale of this blindness. I wonder if you caught it as we were reading through. It it may have come as a a bit of a shock to you to see how exasperated Jesus is with both the Pharisees and his own disciples. I'm sure you could feel the, the exasperation coming off of Jesus as he's talking to these two groups of people. So you look down at me, with me at verse 12. He sighs deeply. Every teacher amongst here knows that sigh. Oh, seriously? But actually, this sigh of Jesus is, is much deeper than that. You see, Jesus is expressing grief. He's expressing anger that these Pharisees don't get it. They're stubbornly refusing to acknowledge that what they've seen all throughout the gospel so far is from God himself. And Jesus sighs. And not only at the Pharisees, he lays into his disciples. I wonder if that made you feel a little awkward. Hang on. These are the people that Jesus has chosen to to send out his message. And here Jesus is absolutely laying into them with a barrage of questions in verses 17 and 18. I wonder if you can see it there. See, they're, they're clueless as well to what is right in front of their faces. And we'll look at that in a minute. See, Mark is simply saying here, everyone is blind. They're all blind to the magnitude of who Jesus is. It doesn't matter who you are. Religious elite, scholar, pillar of the community. doesn't matter if you're in government. doesn't matter if you're a teacher. doesn't matter if you're well-educated. doesn't matter if you've never been to school. doesn't matter if you're moral or immoral, an insider or an outsider. Everyone is suffering from the same spiritual blindness. And that's a great leveler, by the way. That's both a discouraging thing and an encouraging thing because it means all of us here tonight are in the same place. Nobody's necessarily further ahead than anyone else. We all need help to see. So, with these two sets of people, the Pharisees and the disciples, Mark also shows us the reason why they're blind. The reason. So, I think... Broadly speaking, both of these groups that have come to Jesus, the Pharisees and the disciples, have already made up their minds. They've already made up their minds about Jesus' messiahship, his, his sentness already. So much so that their hearts are hardened to the, to the reality of what's right in front of them. See, their preconceptions about what Jesus should be have blinded them to what Jesus actually is. See, it's enraging the, the, the truth about Jesus is totally enraging for the first group, the Pharisees. And it's, and it's in a category so different to what they expected that it is almost unintelligible to them. Jesus hasn't come in a form they expected, in the categories they expect. And, it, and Jesus is instead shattering those categories and it enrages them. You see, now that the Pharisees come to Jesus in verse 11. And it's worth noting, actually, that that many Pharisees had already been present for many of the miracles so far in Mark. Many of the the signs that Jesus has done, though Mark doesn't explicitly call them signs, the Pharisees have been there. 
But what they're looking for here in verse 11 is a, a definitive sign from heaven to confirm that Jesus is the real deal. They've come up to him and said, right, all those miracles are well and good. Show us. Give us a definitive sign that you are who you say you are. But I wonder if you're asking the question right now, but hang on. You've seen all the miracles so far. Wasn't that enough? I mean, take, for example, the uh, healing of the paralyzed man, right, from chapter 2. The man is lowered through the roof. Jesus claims to be able to forgive sin, but to show that he has authority to forgive sin, he also heals the man physically. Right, proven, so you would think. Authority, you can see it right there in front of you. But here are the Pharisees asking for more proof. Apparently that wasn't enough. See, this shows their fundamental problem. They want to be the judges of Jesus' authority. They are not content with God showing and sealing Jesus' ministry with those miracles. They want to be the ones to decide whether Jesus is the real deal or not. Think of their position. They're the ones in the know. They've had the, they've had the Old Testament scriptures for a long, long time now. They know who is from God and who isn't from God. Thank you very much. They want to be the ones sitting in the judgment seat and saying who Jesus is. And they don't want this backwards carpenter from Nazareth to come along and completely overturn their authority. They think they are the authority. And yet here is the Lord of the universe standing right in front of them and they absolutely hate it. Which tells us, doesn't it? that no sign or miracle or evidence is enough for a hard heart on its own. So I have a, a, had a co-worker at school who would call himself a, a very, an atheist, and he was a very outspoken atheist as well. I remember having loads of conversations with this guy and laying out for him the evidence for the gospel, the evidence for Christ being the Son of God. Week after week, term after term, in many different conversations, I laid it out for him. And I remember one time I was uh, coming into the school and I said good morning to him. And I'd I'd been praying like I did uh, before going to work. And he said, "I, I just can't understand why you pray to a God for whom there is no evidence. But I just shared with him as much as I could have done in my limited manner the evidence for God. You see, the evidence isn't lacking. We're lacking. And I want you here who are Christians to know that. Don't ever feel ashamed about the evidence that is in the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ. The evidence is enough. Of course it's, it's enough. Otherwise, without God's grace, none of us would be here. The evidence is not lacking. We are lacking. It's not that the evidence isn't compelling enough. It's that we, in our spiritual blindness, refuse to be compelled. Think about it this way. Does, does a blind person say, oh, I haven't seen enough to convince me? If you, if you tell them that a tree is green, they say, no, I'm going to need a second opinion on that. I haven't really seen enough. Not a blind person says, I can't see. There's no way I'm going to see. I need a miracle. And that's what the Pharisees should be asking for. But for the Pharisees, Jesus is not the Messiah they want. And can you blame Jesus for walking away? Can you blame Jesus for rejecting them? See, God has given them signs. God has sent his son into the world. And yet, because they're unable to see the signs that God has given them, they demand their own signs, as if that would be enough. And can you see the pathological blindness here? It it just beggars belief. And anyway, they've already made up their mind, haven't they? 
If you flick back to chapter 3 and verse 6, you'll see that the Pharisees are already looking to destroy Jesus. Their verdict is already in. So nothing is enough for a hard heart. But you see, surprisingly, Mark turns from the Pharisees into the next scene in this story and shows us that the disciples are also suffering from this spiritual blindness. The Pharisees may not have been the surprising part to you, but the disciples sure was to me. So here we are, verse 14. We're in the boat. It's almost like a classroom. Jesus at the front, disciples sitting down. Now, brothers, you've been in school for many years now. Let's try and see if you've picked up on the lessons. And he gives them numbers, which is terrifying for me because I'm rubbish at maths. But we'll try and go through it. So, he mentions bread. They've just seen a miraculous feeding, and Jesus tells them to beware of the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And they go, oh, bread, right. Yeah, we don't have any bread. I'm sure you could have been sitting there thinking, seriously? You can't see past what Jesus is saying here. And actually in Matthew, which has a, a similar, the same story, he says that he's not talking about bread. He's talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and of Herod. But that's another sermon. See, in the minds of the disciples at the moment, after the, the miraculous feedings they've seen, should be Exodus 16. They should have the Old Testament in their mind as they're seeing all these things that Jesus does. In Exodus 16, as I'm sure you know, God provides bread for a starving people in the wilderness. And if you look at Exodus 16, the parallels between that and what Jesus does in the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000 are staggering. You see, what the disciples should have been doing is thinking back and going, hang on, yeah, this is, this is the second Exodus, Jesus is, 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 the, is the king providing bread for his people. He's going to be the one to take us out of slavery to sin and death and into the promised land. This is the second exodus. All signs point to Messiah, right? Our survey says Messiah. But they can't see it. Why aren't they understanding it yet? See, what Jesus' questions to them, as we've already looked at, are actually almost a direct echo of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Maybe this will be familiar to you. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Make blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. See, there is a a darkness, a spiritual blindness that is almost a judgment hanging over even the disciples. And if you flick back a few pages to chapter 6, It actually gives us the reason that the disciples don't understand what they've seen. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. See, they're blind as well. Even the people who are closest to Jesus and chosen by Jesus are suffering from hardness of heart and blindness. You see, they, in a different way to the Pharisees, wanted a different Jesus. They wanted a Jesus that would come and kick out the Romans and usher in a a golden age of Jewish power and prosperity. Sure, they wanted God's reign on earth, but they wanted it in their terms and by the way they thought. And so I think just like the disciples, you and I can sometimes have false messiahs as well. We can have false expectations of what Jesus has come to do. And we may not not say that we believe these kind of things, but we may functionally still act like we do. Some of us, we may at times think that Jesus has come to make us more comfortable or a nicer person or or a more moral person 
or to, to give us that relationship that we're really looking for or that, that promotion that we really want. We may not say that we believe those things, but we may still live like we do. But the point here that Mark is making is that unless Jesus opens the eyes of these people, they will always come to the wrong conclusion with the evidence that they have before him. Think of it like this way. Uh, If you had a friend that came to you um, and they said, I'm convinced that I'm dead. How would you try and convince them that they're not? Right? So they've come to you and they said, I'm a dead man walking. I'm living proof that I am dead. So you decide to go away. And what you do is you, t- you take the three best medical textbooks you can find on death. And you read through them and you say, yep, these are written by the finest scholars. And they all say the same thing. They all say that dead people cannot bleed. So you hand them to your friend and you say, you should probably read these things. I think it'll be quite enlightening for you. So they go away and they read these books. And they come back to you and you say, did you read the books? They said, yeah. Yeah, I did read the books. And you say, did you understand what they were saying? Yeah. Yeah, I did understand what they were saying. You say, good. So you cut them. And they start to bleed. And they look at it. And their eyes get wide. And you say, do you see now? And they say, yeah, I see. Modern medical science is wrong. Dead people do bleed. You see, that, that person has come to the wrong conclusion, haven't they? And no matter what you give them, no matter what you lay in front of them, they're always going to come to the wrong conclusion. Why? Because their mind is already made up. No matter what data is put in front of you, you will always come to the wrong conclusion, no matter how compelling that data is, if you have the wrong mindset and if you have the wrong criteria to judge it with. And that is exactly what is happening here in this passage and exactly what we see around us in the world around us. We think that we're clever enough, don't we? We think that we're intelligent and educated enough to make authoritative decisions about spiritual reality. We're not. We need help. We need spiritual sight to see who Jesus really is. So how do you get rid of it? How do you get rid of this blindness? How do you begin to see clearly? So the the next scene in this story we're given is this two-stage healing. And and for a long time when I was reading this, I didn't really know what to do with it. It It seemed like it was sort of dropped in there. But like everything in Mark, it's there for a reason. It's going to teach us how we start to see clearly. So let's look down now at verses 22 to 31. Now, most commentators agree about this story, that this healing is kind of a parable of what's been going on before. It's kind of a picture of the spiritual reality that we've just talked about with the Pharisees and the disciples. See, this man that comes to Jesus is a symbol of the blindness we've seen in verses 11 to 21. And because this blindness, this spiritual darkness is so comprehensive, Mark is saying that we need divine intervention to cure it. See, in this passage, Jesus is that divine intervention for this blind man. Jesus has to come and actually heal the man for him to be able to see. And that's how it works today as well. For us to believe in Jesus, for us to see who he really is, Jesus has to come by the power of his spirit and open our eyes. And the good thing is, God is willing. Jesus doesn't, doesn't reject this man, even after he can't see properly the first time. Jesus doesn't reject him. He receives him. He lays his hands on him. He gets very physical with the guy. There's a tenderness there. There's a contact there. God is willing. So that's the first thing. We need divine intervention. Second thing, we need others to help us. Did you see that in verse 22? 
It's almost a blink and you'll miss it moment. People bring the man to Jesus. A blind man can't find him on his own, otherwise he'll probably fall in a ditch or fall in the river. He needs people to bring him to Christ. And so do we. We need to get over our defensiveness and our our self-sufficiency. We need to realize that we need each other to help us to see, to help us to process what what we hear in the word and what we experience in our lives through the lens of the gospel. We need each other. That's why community is so important. That's why the hub is so important. That's why life groups and even what we did on Saturday is so important because we're doing it together. We need each other. We need to be vulnerable and open to relationships with other people. And that's how it worked with me. I'm sure that's how it worked with many of you. It took another person sharing the gospel with you for you to really get it. It took people being patient with you to really get it. That's what it takes. Another thing this passage shows us is that even, even after you've quote-unquote met Jesus, even after Jesus has, has begun to open your eyes to who he is, it's a process. It takes time. I wonder if, if any of you came here tonight thinking, I know I'm a Christian, but I just feel like I'm not getting it 100% yet. Maybe even when we read this passage, or, or maybe you've had some frustrating devotions or quiet times this week where you thought, that hasn't really gone in. I don't really understand what's being said here. Well, this man has to admit that he can't see a right the first time, doesn't he? This man needs two touches from Jesus. He didn't have to, by the way. He could have just said after the the first touch, yep, that's fine, I see, I can see perfectly now, thank you Jesus, brilliant, I can go on my way now. And then he would have gone around sort of talking to tree trunks and trying to chop people down and make furniture out of them. He has to say, I don't see. He needs Jesus' help to see more clearly. And if we feel like we don't get it, then I think we need to come back to Jesus and say, look, Jesus, I just can't see as well as I should at the moment. I'm sure there have been times in your life where you've gone back and, and, and looked, hindsight, by the way, is always twenty twenty. You look back on something you've done, maybe even in your Christian life, and you go, how could I have been so blind? I was a fool. How could I not have seen what, what the right course to take was or what was right in front of me? How could I have missed it? Okay, so... But what that must mean is if we think that about ourselves in the past, there must be aspects of ourselves now that still don't get it, right? There must be aspects of you and I that are still being foolish in some respect or or still not seeing as clearly as we should in some respect. And that should make us patient. Jesus was patient with this blind man. We should be patient with ourselves and with one another. We should be really patient with those people who are still not yet seeing as clearly as we see. And and don't be afraid to admit that you don't see Jesus as clearly as you should. It takes humility to say that. And, and, And I would argue that you won't grow in your Christian life unless you admit that you don't see as you should. But even after... We have this uh, two-stage healing. Even after Jesus has gradually restored the sight of this blind man, Mark, in his narrative, moves us into the final scene where Jesus questions the disciples through Peter directly. Who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Really important questions. And I wonder if you saw that in people in Jesus' time, just like today, they thought that Jesus was right up there, Right? They thought that Jesus was pretty important. Some people say you're Elijah. Uh, Some people say you're one of the prophets of old in the Old Testament. Uh, Some people say you're uh, John the Baptist or or someone like that, right? 
Definitely one of the greats, for sure. Doesn't that sound a lot like our culture? De- Jesus is definitely up there with Muhammad, definitely up there with Buddha, definitely up there with all those other gurus. Clearly very important, clearly very moral teacher. But it doesn't take much to see that Jesus is merely significant. You can be spiritually blind and still see that there's something special about Christ. Herod did. The disciples did. Clearly everyone around him saw that there was something different. But Peter, in verse 29, shows us that the light is beginning to dawn on him. Verse 29, you are the Messiah. Again, in Matthew he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The light is starting to dawn on him. And we can rejoice, can't we? He's got it. Brilliant. Or has he? Has he got it? See, next week, what you'll see is that Peter hasn't really 100% got it yet. There's still the second lesson to go in Mark. He's learned the first lesson. Jesus is the Messiah. But he has yet to learn the second lesson. Jesus is the Messiah on a cross. And actually, that is the final piece of the puzzle here. That's what Mark, and that's what we have to see. We have to be taken to the cross. And verse 30, I think, gives us a little hint of that. Have you ever wondered why, um, all over the Gospels, Jesus warns people not to say anything about him? He'll perform a great miracle, and, and people will be astounded by what he can do, and he'll say, don't say anything. He warns people, don't go and tell people. Even this, this blind man that he heals, he warns, don't go back into the village. And most often, people just go and do it anyway because they're so amazed by what Jesus has done, but he's warning them. And all the commentators agree that the reason Jesus does this is to slow down the inevitable. There's a confrontation coming between Jesus and the authorities that is going to result in blood. And Jesus knows this. And every act of kindness, every act of mercy, every miracle is like Jesus putting another nail in his coffin. It's like him sealing his fate and driving the nails through his hands. That's why he's warning people. Don't tell anybody. And he's sealing his own fate. And actually, if you skip right to the end of Mark, you'll see something that is the total opposite of this healing and this situation that we've seen here. Right? We've been talking about Jesus who is able to open the eyes of people who are in darkness and give them light. From darkness to light, from blindness to sight. You can see it happening with Peter. But in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 and 34, you'll see something that is completely the opposite of that. If you have it, please do uh, turn to it with me and let me read it for us. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you catch that key word there? Darkness. That description of the eclipse. See, that is a a metaphor. It is a picture of the spiritual reality going on in Christ's heart at that moment as he hangs on the cross, dying for the sin of the world. Because at the cross, Jesus was plunged into spiritual darkness, the ultimate spiritual darkness. He was forsaken by his father. 
See, all throughout the Bible, darkness, blindness, lack of sight is a metaphor for God's judgment, God's awful judgment on sin. Do you see? Can you see that here tonight? Jesus lost the light of his father's love. That blazing sun of his father's affections that he beheld face to face in heaven, which he gave up to come to earth to save you and I, which he ultimately gave up on the cross. That blazing star of his father's love was snuffed out and he was plunged into darkness. Jesus was willing He knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew exactly what the healings were leading towards. He was willing to give up that love, to lose that light, to be plunged into blindness and darkness for you and for me so that you and I and Peter and the disciples and everyone else who believes could be rescued from our blindness and from our lack of seeing. Do you see? Do you long for others to see that? Do you long to see it more in your life? I know I do. And, and, when, and when you start to understand that, you don't have to understand it fully, but when you start to understand it by God's grace, you can, your sight begins to clear. You start to see life as it, as it is. You start to see sin for what it really is and Jesus for who he really is. And you can say with John Newton, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. By the way, you've got to see that you're a wretch. It's not uncomfortable to see, but you've got to see that you're a wretch. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see.